0: Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, beginning with verse 36. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Jesus said, but about that day and hour, no one knows neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father for as the days of Noah were. So will be the coming of the son of man. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. It was December in the year 999 A.D. The entire world seemed to believe that Jesus was coming back on January 1, the turn of the first millennium. So for the entire month of December, everyone was on their best behavior. Worldly goods were sold and the money was given to the poor. Throngs of pilgrims headed east to Jerusalem. Buildings went unrepaired. Crops were left unplanted and criminals were released from jail. As the church bells rang the hour at midnight mass on December 31st, Pope Sylvester raised his hands before the altar at St. Peter's Basilica and began the countdown. 10, 9, 8. Now is the time for you to repent from your sins, he said. 7, 6, 5. Hold your children tight. 4, 3, 2, Any second now, half of us may be gone. One, nothing. 999 AD rolled into the year 1000 and absolutely nothing happened. Using an elaborate biblical chronology, a 19th century Baptist preacher named William Miller Miller calculated that Jesus would return on October 22nd 1844. He had a good argument so compelling that as many as 100,000 Christians quit their jobs, sold their property, and waited in makeshift churches and temples and on hillsides for the second coming of Christ. October 21st turned into October 22nd, which turned into the 23rd, and again, nothing happened. David Koresh believed Jesus would come in the year 1995. Nothing happened. We thought Y2K might be it. Again, nothing happened. The latest speculation that I had heard came a few years ago, this time from folks who had been using the Mayan calendar, which suggested that, according to the experts, the world would end on December 21st, 2012. And not surprisingly, again, nothing happened. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been hundreds, possibly thousands, of predictions about when Christ will return. Actually, and maybe more surprisingly, a number of them involve spaceships and UFOs. One cult leader in the 1990s announced that God was coming back on a particular day in 1998 and would appear to true believers on Channel 18 on cable networks across the globe. The leader, though, eventually had to retract his statement when he found out that Channel 18 was on almost every cable system in North America, the Playboy Channel. <laughs> but about that day, an hour No one knows. It's a problem as old as the Christian church itself. Before Jesus died, he told his followers he'd be right back. I go to prepare a place for you, he said. This generation will not pass away, he said. I will not leave you orphaned, he said. So everyone thought he'd be back the day after tomorrow or next week or next month at the latest. Then a decade passed and then another, and the people who actually had known Jesus began to die off. Pretty soon, the stories were being told by people who knew people who had known Jesus. The only reason we have the gospels at all is that someone finally figured out that there weren't that many eyewitnesses left, and they had really ought to get the whole thing put down on paper. The best guess is that Matthew's was the second or third gospel to be written about 40 years after Jesus's death. By that time, most of the original disciples were probably dead as well, many of them being martyred. The Roman army had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple was in ruins. Emperor Nero sat around all day inventing new ways for Christians to be tortured and killed, which made Christianity quite literally a matter of life and death. Everything was falling apart. And those who had believed in Jesus must have wondered if they had been duped. None of what they had hoped Jesus might do for them looked as if it were going to happen. In other words... Matthew had a lot of explaining to do. The early church was scared and frustrated and tired and in need of some answers. Was Jesus delay a part of the plan or was the the whole mission a failure? Our passage in the 24th chapter of his gospel is the best answer to this question Matthew can come up with. I tell you, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. And then a few sentences later, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels, not the son, but only the father. It was the best he could do. Two contradictory statements. I'm coming right back, Jesus says, but God only knows when. The big, fancy, theological word for all of this, of course, is eschatology. It's from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And eschatology is the study of last things, of what will happen at the end of the world as we know it. Some Christians, a a minority, I think, but a fairly loud and vocal minority, read texts like this one, And imagine that the world will end with a catastrophic, cataclysmic final judgment in which a chosen few will be swept up into heaven while the majority of us are damned forever. When I was growing up in Sacramento, I remember going into the Berean Christian bookstore in town. I was in high school and just beginning to explore the questions of Christian faith on my own. In that bookstore, you could buy postcards of the rapture. In Celtic Cross Presbyterian Church, where I was raised, we didn't hear anything at all about the rapture. So what little I knew came mostly through these postcards. They were artists' renderings of a city, circled by freeways full of cars and office buildings and parks and houses on these rapture postcards coming out of those cars and office buildings and parks and houses were white ghost-like shapes representing the believers who were being raptured. They were being taken up into heaven. I remember there was even a cemetery with white shapes coming out of the graves. And what I found most intriguing is is that there were other people who weren't being taken. They were left in cars crashing on the freeway and in office buildings that suddenly had flames shooting out of them. Meanwhile, the grim reaper and battalions of evil beings stalked those who were left behind. It was terrifying. Then two will be in a field, Matthew says. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together One will be taken, and one will be left. We can see where the idea comes from, right? And it's one way to read the Bible. But you need to know that over the centuries, that's not the way most Christians read the Bible. The second way to read these passages is the much more common way. And it's what people have been doing for a long time in the Christian Christian tradition. This way of reading the text says, yeah, the world is going to end someday. Astronomers tell us that. Physicists tell us that. Al Gore and Greta Thunberg tell us that. The Bible tells us that. But the Bible is not just saying so because science says so. The Bible says it differently. The Bible says that the world was created in the loving providence of God and that the world will end In the loving providence of God. And that the world will end not in some random calamity. Just like the beginning, the end will be held in God's good hands. And Jesus reminds us nobody knows when that day will come. But understand this, he says if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an unexpected hour. I read an article this week by a Presbyterian pastor who a few years ago served a church in Asheville, North Carolina. One night she was home alone by herself. Her husband was away at a conference and their teenage son was spending the night with a friend. At 2.30 in the morning, she was awakened by a flashlight beam outside her bedroom window. She was half asleep and didn't think much of it until she heard the front door open with force. The flashlight beam was suddenly moving inside the house in the next room. She writes that she watched for a moment, trying to wrap her mind around what was happening. Maybe she hoped... It was her son coming home unexpectedly from the friend's house. Then the flashlight beam began moving toward her in the darkness. She thought to herself, well, this is going to be the end. Who's there? she asked, hoping to hear her son's voice. Instead, there was silence. Great, she thought to herself. Now whoever it is knows that I'm here and that I'm a woman. So, summoning all of her courage with all the authority she could muster, she asked again, Who's there? The person ran out the door and she hid under the covers. As terrifying as that experience was, the pastor says, it helped her to clarify a crucial point about this morning's passage. The thief breaks in to steal, to take away, to do harm. God breaks in in love, to bless, and to build. Yes, Jesus is coming back. The Bible is very clear about that. But the Son of Man is coming to give life, not to take it away. The Son of Man is coming to complete the kingdom he's begun, not to destroy it. Jesus is not a thief or a terrorist. Jesus is the good shepherd, the savior of the world, the prince of peace. And it seems to me that that intruder might be worth waiting for, the one who comes to rouse us out of the slumber and the monotony of our everyday lives. He comes to give us life in all its fullness. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Oddly enough, hearing these words on the first Sunday of Advent has been a tradition of the Christian church for centuries. It's all meant as a way to prepare for the coming of the Christ child in Bethlehem by also preparing for his coming again at the end of time. It reminds us that the posture of God's people is always the same, watching and waiting and hoping in anticipation. Here's the thing, we always wait with expectations and waiting heightens our awareness. If you're waiting for Santa to come and you hear sleigh bells on the roof, you don't wonder what it is, you know, and you're thrilled. If you're waiting for a loved one to come home and you hear a key jingling at the door, you're not terrified, you're relieved. If you're waiting for Jesus, There's nothing, nothing to fear. The apostle Paul tells us, you know what time it is. It's now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we are thankful that you have met us at your table, that you nourish us with your body and your blood, and that you embolden us now to go into your world to bring your good news. Be with us as we go into a world that needs your hope so desperately. And when we feel that we are without words to pray, remind us of the prayer that your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,